Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Good. It's great to see you all this morning. Uh, we are going to be in Judges chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to page 207. And that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, my name is James Foster. I'm the pastor of community here at Wells Branch Community Church. And I'm so excited to uh, close out our series on Gideon this morning with you all. And as you guys know, we are a church that loves to answer your questions. Uh, last week, we had like 10 questions submitted uh, during the sermon, which is amazing. It was either like a really great sermon that really challenged you or it was really unclear. Uh, either way, uh, we love questions. And even if we get all 10 of those, we're going to try to answer those and we're going to do our best to, to approach those throughout the week. So uh, please send those in. Uh, that makes the podcast a much better experience than uh, if we don't have questions. It's kind of kind of awkward. All right. So uh, we are closing out a four-week series on testing God, looking at the life of Gideon, and seeing what Gideon was all about. First, we saw uh, <clears throat> we started off with testing who I am, Gideon finding his identity. He was a, a, a mighty warrior, called the mighty warrior, but when we first meet him, he was in a wine press uh, hiding because he didn't want to uh, prepare the wheat out in the open because he was afraid it was going to get stolen from him. Uh, he meets God. He's given a new identity uh, in that moment. This is a really cool thing. Then week two, we talked about how he risked it all, how uh, he was willing to possibly even give up his life by tearing down the altar of Baal, uh, and God rescued him. He was given a cool nickname, Jerobaal, uh, of the one who contends with Baal. And then... Uh, Week three, we talked about testing faith, faith or fear, how Gideon overcame his fear to finally launch into this battle. We saw that last week, and today we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to start with that battle, and we're going to then jump into um, this power trip and fall. So with Gideon, we have a little bit of a power trip. He gets a little bit of a power trip. He, he experiences God's power, and it's this really cool, really crazy thing, and then all of a sudden, this uh, pride wells up in him. He gets a little bit power hungry, and he's going to fall uh, because of that power trip that he has. A little bit of a pun there, but we'll keep moving. All right. So uh, when we think about having a fall from grace, a fall from this greatness, uh, it can come from this power trip. But, but it, the reality is that nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I think I'm going to go and rob a bank. You know, I think I'm going to uh, go and just have an affair. Uh, we don't just wake up and say, uh, see you later, morality, I'm, I'm out. There's oftentimes these slower, smaller choices that we make that lead us away from God, lead us away from being this humble, fully dependent on him uh, place where we really recognize our need for him, where we really recognize uh, how great he is and what all he's doing in our lives. And so when we look at the fall of Gideon, what I don't want us to do is, is say, okay, I got it, James, the message is do better, like be better, like be great moral people. Because our hope is not in being morally good. Our hope is not in uh, nailing it and really crushing it. Our hope is in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, that he was fully obedient so that even when I sin, even when I do fall uh, from that perfect standard, even when I make mistakes, I'm not crushed by that. I'm able to run to God. I'm able to run to a God who forgives, a God who sees me, and instead of seeing me and all my falls, all my flaws, all my falls, all the places I trip up and stumble, he sees Jesus, his perfect son, and his righteousness is given to me. It covers me so that I can experience that grace. And I need that because I do fail a lot. I fall a lot. Um, and so we are often prone to fall when we underestimate our own pride 
vulnerability, or influence. And so uh, these three things we can underestimate. We can underestimate our own pride. We can think, I, I got this. I'm, I'm good. Um, we are often hungry for power. We're hungry for glory. We want more and more and more. Uh, if you ask Tom Brady which uh, Super Bowl is his favorite, he says the next one because he wants the next one. He wants more and more and more glory, more and more and more greatness. Uh, and that pride can lead us to a place of depending on us instead of depending on God. Uh, we're vulnerable. We need to recognize, hey, we are vulnerable. We're susceptible. We're corruptible. We're susceptible to sin. We're susceptible to fall. We don't want to be unsuspecting and ignorant about our own propensity to sin because no matter how long we've been following Jesus, we can still fall. We are still have our sin nature. We, we can walk by the flesh. And if we're not completely dependent upon God, uh, we are going to uh, run into that sin. We're going to trip up that way. So these are three ways that we trip up. Uh, with the vulnerability, I think a lot about uh, this past weekend, we went to Rockport, we went to a beach, and my son wouldn't get in the water. And so I was like, okay, that's cool. We're going to make like the best sandcastle possible. And so I start bringing water over to him. And then after like a few trips of water, he's like, no, 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 no more water, no more water. And I'm angry. And I'm like, I, we're, we're building a sandcastle here. He, he, we got through it, right? We worked through the issues. But what, I'm, what I was convicted by there is that like two minutes before that, I was like, this is all about you. This is all about like, I'm going to bring you the water since you're not going to go to the water. And then eventually I'm going to get you to the water this way. But within two minutes of that, when he's like, no, no, no more water, I'm like, I'm angry inside of me. And I'm like, that's weird because this started out about you. It started as this pure thing of I want to serve you, I want to love you, I want to bring this water to you so you can really enjoy the beach. And then uh, it twists and it becomes about me all of a sudden. And we have this same tendency. Uh, we start off with something that might start really pure, might start really great, and then we can slowly twist it and it becomes more and more about us, which can lead us to a place of falling. And third, we underestimate our own influence. So we say, you know what, I can, I can do whatever I want. You do you, I'll do me. Like, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, we're good. And we can, we can just make our own morality. We'll be okay there. And um, you can think, well, as long as you don't hurt anyone else, you're good, right? And that's not the case because a lot of us have these little people that are looking at us and watching everything we do. And when we sin, they sin and they repeat those things. This past week, I didn't. This past week, uh, for some, something uh, overtook me to think, you know what, I think I'll... I think I'll throw a banana peel down the stairs after I'm done with it. Uh, and it was, happened to be during our community group time. Uh, and it was, it was kind of like a fun, joking thing. And then literally three minutes later, my son does the exact same thing. And I was like, okay, I'm, now I'm, I'm doubly embarrassed, really more for me than for him. But like literally that same thing that I did that was like, hey, don't do that, was like, a, oh, okay, now you're doing the exact same thing. Because he, he's looking at me, he's following me, he's doing what I do. Um, Last week, my daughter was caught licking her plate clean, which sounds, I mean, it's totally acceptable for a one-year-old to do, but she might have seen somebody older than one-year-old, one doing that before she did it. And so I, I can be embarrassed about that too, uh, that, that I, I can be funny, right? And just be like, oh, you know, it's fine. No worries. Don't wor we're not worried about it. But then these little things that I do that are, that are cute for a kid to do aren't so cute when you're 32 years old. Okay, moving on. Judges 21, 25. This is a theme of Judges. The thing that we continually see in the book of Judges is that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, uh, right in his own eyes. Uh, 
we always we see this cycle of apostasy. They run, they do their own thing. I'm going to do me. Uh, then they're worshiping false gods. They get oppressed because God says, you know what, you want to you have it your way, I'm going to remove my grace. They get oppressed by these other rulers. And then when they're oppressed by these other rulers, eventually, in this case with Gideon, it took seven years before they cried out. They cry out, they repent, and then God is gracious to deliver them. And then they inevitably fall back into that apostasy. This is what they continually do. They're continuing to fall into the same patterns. This is a cycle that we see with them because they forget that God is good, that he's gracious to deliver, and instead they just go back to their default settings and worship other gods. And so we're looking at a lot of text this morning. We're, we're running through a lot. We're going to go from all the way from 7.15, which is the verse we ended on last week, all the way till the end of chapter 8. Um, we're going to kind of run through a lot of it, and we're not going to have a chance to drill down quite as deep as I would like to, unless you guys want to stay here for a couple hours. No, okay, we're going to just, we're going to move quickly, and we're not going to drill quite as deep as uh, I would like to, but first, let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we worship you, and we glorify your name. We need you to meet us here. We need you to help us to focus uh, as we're going to look at more text than usual, as we're going to look at a lot of things this morning. I pray that you'd help us to focus on you. I pray that you'd help us to learn more about you, that you'd help us to fall deeper in love with you so that we can be conformed to the image of your perfect son, so that we can become more like you, so that we can understand your grace, understand your love, understand your power in a new way, and be transformed by it. Lord, we love you, and we worship you, and we need you. Use this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, remember, we had Gideon. He had finally, he'd gotten sign after sign after sign. God spoke to him. Uh, God speaks to Gideon. He doesn't speak to any of the other judges. So God has revealed himself time and time again. He gave him more than enough signs for him to finally get it together. Finally, when he hears the dream that the other guy had, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. So this is like the kind of pure, kind of cool thing. Because we're flying a little bit faster than usual, I'm going to give you guys some help with just uh, giving you a little point here uh, towards the top instead of waiting and sharing it later. So Gideon takes credit for God's victory. How does he do that? Well, in verse 16 and 17, Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. This is Gideon still being faithful. He's gotten this idea of this is how it's going to be best for us to deliver these people. And so we're going to go and we're going to surround the camp and all of our men are going to have trumpets in one hand and empty jars with torches inside the jars. So like they can't see the light at first. And then later, when they break the jars, they are going to be able to see this. So Gideon is fearless in giving commands. He's doing a great job so far. Uh, the author makes it pretty clear that they have trumpets in one hand and empty jars with torches in the other hand. This is important. Hang on to that. Verse 18, Gideon took credit for God's victory. Uh, when, he's, when he says, when I blow the trumpet... And I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So how does he take credit here? He starts with this, a little bit of a suspicious comment with this, for the Lord and for Gideon. Their battle cry is going to be for the Lord and for Gideon. Uh, he's putting himself right there, right after God. And, and so he's saying the victory is going to come from the Lord and for Gideon. We're fighting for the Lord and for Gideon. This is a little bit suspicious here, uh, but we'll, we'll, maybe we'll be uh, gracious with 
see what happens, and we're going to see how he kind of grows from that or see what else happens. So verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. So uh, the changing of the watch, the guys who were watching are now going back to go to bed. The guys who were not watching have gotten in place. They, they just set the watch. They just started the watch. So there's a lot of movement within the camp. This is a great strategic time for Gideon to do this. They blow the trumpets. They smash the jars that were in their hands. Um, so then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars that they held in their left hand and the torches in their right hands, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. So what we see here is that there, there's, it's about 10 o'clock at night. There's 300 people of Gideon's tiny army divided into three companies, 100, 100, 100, surrounding the camp. There's a lot of movement because they just changed the watch. Most of the people are sleeping. They're woken up from their sleep with this smashing of jars, the smashing of uh, these jars, and then these trumpets playing, and this shout, uh, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So they're terrified because there's all this movement. They, you wake up, you're surrounded by a bunch of people moving. They think that the enemy is in their camp because of all the watchmen coming down and sitting down. Uh, and then what's interesting here is the author, again, is going to point out that in their right hands are the trumpets to blow, in the left hands are the torches. So are, they're not holding a sword. They're not able to fight. If In one hand, they've got a trumpet. In one hand, they've got a torch. Yet, they cry out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So again, Gideon's putting himself right up there with God. He's saying, uh, this is about, this is for me, this is for me, and for the Lord. This is like, ah, okay, a little more sketchy here, Gideon, but you're, you're moving and you're doing this cool thing. So it's like really inspiring that he's acting and he's moving and he's being faithful to, to go into battle against uh, 135,000 with his 300. Um, and he's doing it wisely, but he's got this weird thing of like, there's this red flag of like, okay, for the Lord and for Gideon. Um, we need to be careful when we're doing the Lord's work, not to put ourselves right up there with God of like, I, I can't save anyone. If I share the gospel, I'm not saving them. God is saving them. And he might use a gospel proclamation that I make, but it's not me that's doing the saving. You with me on that? And that's a little, it's a, it's a little troubling so far, but maybe he's still good. He's still, he's still obeying what God has called him to do. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So it's, it's making it really clear here. Who's giving the victory? The Lord. The Lord is the one who sets the army against itself. They've uh, created this panic. There's this fleeing. There's this fight and flight thing happening for all the army that's there that just woke up. They're fleeing as far as Beth Shitta towards Zerara, as far as the border of Abel Mahola and by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So, uh, spoiler alert the Lord acting here, where he says, The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade, against all the army. This is the last place we see the Lord acting in this Gideon narrative. The Lord. The last place that the, we see the Lord acting is here where he's the one who's setting the army against itself. He's the one who's giving the victory, and Gideon is going to take credit for that. He's going to try to take some of that credit. He's going to try to take some of that glory because when the battle was actually happening, he was passive. 
He was, sitting, he was standing there with the trumpet and with the torch, blowing the trumpet, doing some battle cries, but not really doing anything except for appearing to be a lot more men than 300 men. And so um, what we see here in all of this first section is that Gideon was more prideful than he thought. Gideon is more susceptible to pride. He was more uh, made it about himself. Even though he did this great thing of the Lord, he kind of made it about himself. And even though they had victory in this battle, he made it about himself. Where last, uh, last week we saw that God shrunk the army from 32,000 down to 300. He then, after they're all on the run, after the Lord has given uh, this victory, after he's caused this stirring where they're fighting against each other and running away, he's reversing that by calling them back, the men of Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh. He's calling them back into the battle, uh, basically reversing what God had done that last time. And then we see that Gideon takes charge. He took charge for personal glory. So it wasn't enough for him to just have a little bit of a win. He wanted to make it like, we're going to make this about how many of these uh, enemy guys can we take down? How many of these guys can we take out? Because they've been harassing us for too long. We're going we're gonna to go. And this is where it seems like he goes beyond what God had called him to do when he starts to pursue the enemy. Uh, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, those are like the mighty warriors, the ones who are known for their might in battle, the ones who, like, th- these are the reinforcements you would want to call in, though God shrunk the army. He was going to do it with 300, so not necessarily necessary, but he calls in the, the big guns. Uh, he says, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also to the Jordan. Uh, and so he's saying, seal the perimeter. Let's, let's lock them in. Let's surround them. So all the places that they would escape, we're going to stop them there. We're going to keep them from fleeing. We're going to fight them right there where they are. Um, so all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So the, Midian, uh, the Ephraimites take down their two biggest leaders, these two princes, Oreb and Zeb. Um, they're killing these two major princes. Then they're going to come to Gideon, and they're going to kind of challenge him because they want the glory too. They wanted, they wanted to be invited to that first battle. They wanted to be there so that they could take down the, these enemies, and they're, they're feeling a little bit, they're in their feelings a little bit, that they, they didn't get invited to do the fighting the first time. And so what we see in chapter 8, verse 1, the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Little flattery does the charm for him here. Is it not the gleaning of, is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of a beezer? So the little, the gleaning of grapes, like the, the little just walk by, grab a couple, uh, that, that's greater than the whole harvest of what we've done. Hey, this, even the, the smallest thing that y'all have done surpasses anything that we were able to accomplish. Uh, Verse 3, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And because they're like, hey, I want the glory. I want, it to, I want to show how great we are. He says, hey, you guys, we're still great. You, you haven't lost your power. You haven't lost your position. You're still like the greatest fighters. You're still going to get all the credit, all the glory. Don't worry. Uh, that appeased their anger, and their anger subsided against him when he had said that. And so... Uh, they, had a, they had a great feat. They weren't losing their power. 
they were also seeking the glory like Gideon had been, um, but it, they were appeased by that. Okay, verse 4. Gideon's, so here in this next section, Gideon goes and he's asking for provisions from people of Succoth and people of Penuel. He wants a little bit of food because his people are tired because they're pursuing the enemy. And this is another hint that maybe God isn't in this as much, that there's resistance from these guys in Succoth and Penuel. Uh, Succoth and Penuel were also oppressed by these same guys. And so their fear in helping out Gideon and his army was that if they don't win, then they would be punished by Ziba and Zalmunna for uh, helping the, these guys who don't end up actually taking them down. So verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. A lot of times when we're selfish ambition instead of holy ambition, we're going to be exhausted yet pursuing. Verse 5. So he said to them, men of Succoth, please give loaves of the bread to people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. They weren't impressed. The officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'm going to take pokey sticks. I'm going to take thorns. I'm going to beat you with them because you're saying no to me. He's him, him pursuing the enemy. Like, I, I'll give you a pass for that, right? Like, Going a little bit above and beyond, you want, to take, you want to make sure that we have peace a little longer? I'm okay with that. You attacking our people, that's where you've gone too far. When you start attacking the Israelites because they're not supporting you right away because they need a little patient. Like, remember how patient God was with Gideon? That he gave him sign and sign and sign. He talked to him. He really walked him through this. And then he's completely the opposite with these people. He's like, you're not with me? Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you when I come back. And then uh, the same thing happens in Penuel, verse 8. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. When he comes in peace, he's not going to come in peace because he's got plans to kill them and break down this tower, but that's okay. Uh, he's, he's got this selfish ambition that's taken over to the point of like, this is out of control. He went from like, I'm terrified to do anything and I need encouragement, encouragement, encouragement to do anything to now, look at how great I am. I didn't actually do anything in the fight that I won that was actually the really epic battle, but I'm going to prove to you all how great I am. Uh, and I'm going to prove to everyone how powerful I am. He's on this selfish pursuit to make a name for himself, to be the greatest judge that there ever was. He, and, and something has gone dark in Gideon at this point. It's, it's a little bit uh, sketchy. He's fallen from his place of being completely dependent upon God, and he's pursuing his own uh, glory at this point. Then we see Gideon continues pursuing the enemy. Uh, verse 10, now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. Remember we talked about how there were 135,000 of the enemies. There were 300 of Gideon and his troops, uh, originally 32,000, then it shrunk to 10,000, then 300. Uh, so this, the number, 135,000, came from this. Uh, 120,000 men who drew the sword, um, the, they had died. So 120,000 men had died who drew the sword. They, they killed each other. Uh, and this drew the sword is 
a reference again to like pointing back to, hey, God did the delivering. God did the one, he was the one who turned their sword against each other. Uh, it's, it's pointing back to that. Uh, verse 11, and Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the army for the army felt secure. So he's going to do a sneak attack, a little ambush action, go where the tent dwellers go. Uh, th- right when they feel secure, he pounces on them. He's attacking them. Uh, verse 12, Ziba and Zalmunna fled and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Now, if you're doing a little military conquest, at this point, you would expect him to take care of Zeba and Zalmunna right away, right? Because they're the bad guys. You don't want to delay with that. You want to bring about justice right away if that's what you're really about. But he's not about justice. He's about uh, retribution. He's about retaliating. And so he's going to bring them back to the men of Penuel and the men of Succoth to really prove his point of like, hey, you didn't think I could do this? Here I am. I'm going to prove it to you. And so again, we see this like, this is Gideon far from the heart of God of like, I want to deliver my people. And now he's making it about himself instead of about the Lord. He's fallen, uh, he's fallen from his closeness with God because he's on a power trip. Verse 13, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? Sometimes when we are self our selfish ambition, it's all about us and our glory. We have this tendency, like, you know those people, like, you say one thing, like, five years ago, and they quote it exactly to you, like, because they're still bitter about it, and it's, it's really bothering them. It's eating away of them. He's quoting them exactly what they said, saying, hey, you remember you said this? Here's justice. Here it comes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay. This is, like, the moment that he's been dreaming about for however long he's been gone away from them, and he's about to get the justice that he's seeking. And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth a lesson. <laughs> he gave them a beating, a little bit of a, a whipping. I'm okay, I'm okay with this uh, to an extent. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's, I'm uncomfortable with it. But it's not as bad as what he does to the men of Penuel. Uh, verse 17, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So now like friendly fire has turned into murder against people that are Israelites. This is wrong. This is like, if we were just like a little suspicious about Gideon and where he was maybe going astray, now we're like, okay, this is, you're completely, you've completely gone dark. Like, where's like that little hesitation that we were hoping for? Um, like you, maybe you're just like a broken vigilante justice Batman type, but now you're like, you're too far. Now you're not a hero anymore. You're, you're making it about you too much. And now this isn't, this isn't okay that you're killing Israelites, that you're breaking down Israelite buildings, the Tower of Penuel. So <clears throat> then we see Gideon again retaliates for personal glory. So he's going to retaliate here, not against the, uh, the Israelites, but against Ziba and Zalmunna. He said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? This isn't a biblical fight that we know about, uh, but we're going to be able to fill in the details from what, what, how they answer. They answered, as you are, so, so were they. They kind of looked like you. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And they said, and he said, they were my brothers. He says, hey, you killed my brothers, like my real brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. This isn't a, this isn't a, a pattern in 
uh, scripture for like battles of like, hey, if they, if they don't kill your family, then you don't have to, you can spare them. That's not a, a thing. But what we see here is that he's seeking justice that's beyond what the Lord has called him to do because it's, it's very personal to him of you killed my family, now I'm killing you. But you know what? I'm not going to actually kill you. I'm going to have my son Jether kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. He wanted to give his son a chance to do the killing, which is great, uh, except for his son is just like him, a scaredy cat. So he's too afraid to do it. The young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid. This should be very easy for us to accept. Gideon was a fearful guy until he became a crazy, power-hungry dude. Uh, And his son is the same way, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So his son had been watching dad, had been picking up on how his dad was a little bit of a scaredy cat. Uh, he also became a little bit of a scaredy cat. Maybe it's how, how he's wired. I don't know. But he was afraid, so he wasn't able to do it. Then these guys kind of puff him up a little bit. They're like, hey, you know what? You're a mighty guy. You can kill us. And so he killed Zeba and Zalmunna himself. Then he, you know it's a little sketchy when he's taking away the, the spoils, the crescent ornaments from their camels. Um, he's, he's making it about more than just justice. He's making it about, like, I'm going to gain at your expense. I'm going to gain from killing you here also. Okay, so now this is where we're going to really settle down. We're going to feel, it's going to feel a little bit normal. But after all of that sprinting through this, uh, we, can, we can see that Gideon was more prideful than he uh, thought. He was more um, susceptible to sin. He was more corruptible than he thought. And uh, he was more influential than he thought in that his son had been watching him and had been fearful just like he was. And so uh, we see this, this fall is going to continue and it's going to escalate more here in verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon says the perfect thing here. It's like he is, he is right there with the heart of God. The people want a king because all the other people have a king. They've been oppressed by these other kings. They don't want to be oppressed again. So he's like, hey, uh, they're like, hey, we want you to be our king. Not just you, but like your son should be our king too, and then your grandson should be our king. Let's do the kingship thing. We need that. Um, and he, he says all the right things of, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Sometimes when we're prideful, we can say all the right things, but our actions don't line up with that. Our, what we're actually doing don't line up with that, uh, and, and that can be problematic. That can be uh, troublesome, and people pick up on that. They pick up on when our actions don't line up with what we're saying, and so uh, how do his actions not line up with it? what he's saying? He's saying, I don't want to be a king, but then he wants to be treated like a king. Verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. So he gave them a little tax. He, wanted, he didn't want to be a king. But he wanted to get the glory from the battle, and he wanted to get, pick up a little tax here. So just give me some earrings, and we'll call it even. Gideon was more prideful than he thought. Gideon wanted to be treated like a king, even though he said that he didn't want to be a king. 
He wanted all the benefits of it, but not the responsibilities. He was more prideful than he thought. We can also become prideful and we can be blind to our own pride. We can get hungry for glory and the wrong things. And all of a sudden we arrive at this place of like, I'm seeking after something that I didn't think that I was seeking after. Um, And when I think about this, like a question that I guess I would use to probe if this is you or not would be, if all of your prayers were answered, whose kingdom would grow the most? So if all of your prayers were answered, whose kingdom would grow the most? Because we pray about what we care about. We pray about what we love. We pray about the things that we're most passionate about. And so if all of the prayers that, that I have are answered, and it's between you and the Lord, because I don't know what you pray, and most of us don't know what we pray, apart from spouses, uh, what, would that, what would that be? Whose kingdom would grow? Would it be like the kingdom of James becomes great because I've just been praying for a lot of self-centered things? Or would it be the kingdom of God advances because God receives the praise and the worship that he's due for being sovereign creator of the universe who is close to us, who is present with us, who loves us, and we're praying for his kingdom to advance, not for our own kingdom, for our own personal gain and glory. Okay, we're going to see next how Gideon is more susceptible to sin. He's more corruptible. He's maybe naive to that with uh, how he continues to want to be treated like a king. In verse 26, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, about 43 pounds, big, big chunk of gold, uh, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. Lots of gold that he requested. So a uh, big tax that he, that he pulled in. Verse 27, he made an ephod of it, and he put it in his city of Ophrah. Okay, so the ephod could be uh, morally neutral. It could be like he's bringing back like the, the remembrance of this time where there was a high priest who'd wear this great garment, and it was an ephod, right? He's bringing back this remembrance of this. It could be like he just wants to make an ephod like this, or it could be that he makes like a thing that they place in Ophrah that people would come and look at and remember the greatness of him, and then they would fall into this idolatry, this worship of this thing. That's not worth worshiping. So he's, this is like an offense on the same level of Aaron and the golden calf. And while Gideon had shown so much promise to be a Moses-like deliverer, instead he turned out to be an Aaron building this golden calf. Uh, he did have some Moses moments, but he also had some Aaron moments of building this golden calf that led the people astray uh, from this publicly sponsored uh, idolatry. And so how does Israel respond to it? They hoard after it. They worshiped it. They were faithful to that thing and to Baal instead of being faithful to God who had delivered them in the first place. It became a snare, a trap to them, uh, to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued. So there's, there's some good news here that Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So he, he lived like a king. He said he didn't want to be a king, but he taxed the people. Um, and then he accidentally led the people astray with this ephod that might have started from a pure place, but it got twisted to this thing that was about glory, that this thing about, hey, come to my hometown and worship this thing that I made. That's pretty great because I delivered these people. Verse 29, Drubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. So he has 
70 sons with a lot of women. So he's really enjoying this time of peace that he's got. He's really making the most of it. Uh, He's got a lot of wives. He's got women that aren't his wives that he's sleeping with and having kids with uh, that aren't Israelites, that are uh, people that are enemy people that he's uh, having these relationships with. And then he happens to name his son Abimelech, which is a common name uh, that we see that means my father is king. So he's like, don't, don't call me king. But then a few years later, has a son and says, oh yeah, his name is Abimelech. My father's the king. So it's like, what are you really after here, buddy? Because it seems like you're kind of saying one thing, but then your actions are really pointing a completely different way. He drifted from his stature. He drifted from this place of greatness because of his pursuit uh, for his own personal gain, his own personal glory. Um, And so this was troublesome, that he was more vulnerable than he thought. We're all more vulnerable than we think. Uh, We all are more corruptible than we think. This could be any of us. And thankfully, our hope is not in how perfectly we perform, but it's in the grace of God that he has revealed to us through Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life we could never live, who died the death on the cross that we deserve, who rose from the dead so that if we trust in him, we can have life in his name. Our hope is in his perfection, not in our performance, which then allows us to say, you know what? I am vulnerable. I am, like my heart goes dark too, right? Like I can get upset about my son not wanting to build a sandcastle. And then when this thing that starts really pure becomes dark. I, we, we've seen this happen too many times in the church. Uh, my, my wife is obsessed with uh, that, that musical Hamilton, right? Hamilton, his uh, obsession for personal gain, he doesn't uh, leave for the city to go upstate. He stays and he, uh, he wants to work harder so that he can become more prominent, so that he can make a name for himself. And because he does that, he has an affair. And because he has an affair, then he, all of his life unfolds. It turns to garbage. Now, I looked it up yesterday. He did say he was a Christian, Presbyterian. Uh, but, but his hope wasn't in being a great Christian, right? But he had this this personal glory that led him astray. We see this in the church all the time, right? People that I looked up to when I first came to faith, Mark Driscoll was like my hero. He was my guy. I watched all of his messages, like love the hour-long messages of like saying something and really going deep into it. And I, I love the teaching. And I was like, this is like a hero of mine. And then it turns out he had this problem of pride that he was abusive and he was uh, making sexual jokes about people's wives and doing all sorts of stuff that was not right. He was vulnerable. He was in a place of uh, power. He was in a position of power. And somehow he drifted from that place of humble obedience in Christ, humble obedience, humble dependence upon Christ to uh, trusting himself. And he just made some mistakes and got disqualified for a season. And, you know, Ravi Zacharias, another huge guy, informative in my faith of like really looking at the faith and thinking about it critically. And then, uh, after he passes away, there's these scandals about massages and uh, 300 girls on his phone of weird pictures. And it's just, it's sketchy, right? And, and none of us wants to become that creepy old guy or that, that guy who makes the mistake. But we can slowly drift if we're not completely dependent upon Christ of, uh, I need you to, to lead me. I don't want to trust in my performance. But I know that I'm, when I hear those stories, I'm not surprised by that because we're all sinners, And even though we can do great things for the kingdom of God, our heart can go dark and we can become dependent upon ourselves. And if I'm not prayerful, I just revert back to my default settings of making things all about me. And my selfish ambition grows out of control. 
And so I have to be on guard that, hey, this could happen to any of us, and we're all vulnerable. We're all corruptible. We're, we are all sinners. And so we have to have this uh, watchfulness, this I'm not okay with sin. I'm not going to just tolerate this sin kind of growing in my life and, and becoming a thing that can be sketchy like this, right? And so uh, part of that that I want to say with us being vulnerable, us all being vulnerable, if your hope is on any person other than Jesus Christ, you're going to set yourself up for being let down. Place your, place your soul trust in Jesus Christ. We have a lot of great leaders, but our, our soul trust needs to be in Jesus, right? And if it's any other person besides him, let it be the Father or the Holy Spirit, right? But nobody else, because every other person is susceptible to sin. Every other person is corruptible. Uh, even the greats of our faith, there, there could be things that let us down, and we don't want to put our hope on anybody other than Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, verse 32. Closing it out, looking at how Gideon was more influential than he thought. Remember, he had the son Jether, who was afraid, just like him early in his life. And then he has this other son, Abimelech, who was like him in his later life, power-hungry, glory-seeking, ready to, to kill anybody who encroached upon him and his personal glory and his pursuit of personal gain and fame and kingship. And so Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age. He was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. So he got to live to a good old age. He got to be buried in his father's tomb. Um, he, he went home. He was buried after 40 years of peace. Um, he died, and then they turned again, went back to default settings, whored after the Baals, worshiped false gods, and made Baal Bareth their God. Baal Bareth is like extra offensive here. Bareth means uh, in Hebrew, covenant. And so they made a covenant with Baal, the false god that he had delivered them from. Um, and so he, <clears throat> they forgot their covenant with the covenant God, the God of steadfast love, and instead they served Baal. They had drifted, they had tripped up from that ephod that Gideon had made, and then they tripped into sin, they tripped into selfishness, they tripped into their own pursuits instead of uh, following God. Uh, the God who had rescued them. And then uh, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The people, like us, were quick to forget. We, we, are, we have like this memory problem of we, we know that God has answered our prayers, we know that God has delivered us, but we're quick to forget that and start to trust in ourselves and trust in these other things that have proven time and time again to be empty, to be vain pursuits, to, to be worthless. And so how did, they, uh, how did they not show steadfast love to the family of uh, Gideon? Well, they let his son, Abimelech, uh, become king. So Abimelech does some petitioning. He gets the people of Shechem, these, these uh, non-Israelite folks of like, hey, wouldn't it be great if I was the king? Like, yeah, I know you guys wanted a king. Wouldn't it be great if it was me? Oh, but for me to do that, I'm actually going to have to do some killing of family members. So like the way that Gideon killed Israelites, this guy, his son Abimelech, killed his brothers. Of the 70 brothers, the 70 real sons of Gideon, he was the son, but of a concubine, not an Israelite woman. So he kills all the, the ones that would be the rightful heirs because he wants that glory, because he wants that power. And so he goes extra dark. He goes uh, 
even further down that road. And instead of them being oppressed by an enemy, there's this civil war that happens where he's going to do even more killing of the Israelites who don't submit to him as their king. And it's just just a really dark place that we aren't going to get to go to together. But I would encourage you guys to read uh, Judges 9, 10, I think it goes through 11, uh, and check out the story of Abimelech. Super dark. It's like Gideon, but times 10. Um, and so Gideon, Gideon and his mistakes times 10. Uh, Gideon was more influential than he thought. Um, we have these little people watching us, right? These little children that watch us. And, and if you don't have children, uh, you have little people watching you too. And, and we, we make, we've been making a lot of push for children's ministry, so I want to double down on that really fast. Of we need more workers. But uh, kids tend to, believe it or not, think other people are cooler than their parents <laughs> after just a very short period of time. And so you going and being a great influence for uh, people, for my children, for uh, Christ, is, is, a, is a very uh, awesome thing to do. Whether you serve or don't in children's ministry, kids are watching you. They're, you're in, more influential than you think. Your uh, sin isn't just going to affect you. I remember uh, sharing my faith in college, and like three times I heard the same story about my youth pastor just fell away from the faith, and it just wrecked my faith, and now I just can't believe. It was like this weird thing of like this per. as we uh, have people watching us, if we fall away from the faith, it will have greater consequences than just our own faith, and so we need to be aware of that and just be all the more dependent on God of, hey, I need your grace. I need your love. I need you to sustain me in this. So we have people watching us. We're more influential than we think. So our big question with all of this is, are you tripping? (laughs) So you could, we, I talked about three different ways that you might be tripping. You might have have this stumbling block of pride. You might have this stumbling block of, I'm not corruptible, and you're naive to your own sinfulness, your own propensity to twist the great things to make them about you? Are, you? are you tripping based on you don't think that you're influential, and so you're leading people into sin without even knowing it? You're throwing the banana peels. You're licking the plate. You're doing all the things that like you're like, what are you doing? You're 32 years old. But you're doing these things. You're making these mistakes, not even realizing that people are watching you. And so there's this, there's this great uh, weight with all this, but also this great grace of knowing that Uh, While we will fail, there's grace for us. While we will make mistakes, while we will trip, we should run to God, the God of mercy, who's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who forgives us time and time again, who receives us back. And when, as we sin, when we run to him, We have this great opportunity uh, to to be even closer to him, to understand his grace even more. I think about uh, the the sinful woman in Luke 7 uh, who has this, who's just crying nonstop when Jesus goes uh, and he's sitting and the Pharisee's like, if you just knew how bad this woman was, there's no way you'd be letting this happen. Um, And he says, who do you suppose would love more? Uh, He who's forgiven a small debt or he who's forgiven a large debt? And as as we realize that we've been forgiven an infinite number of times because we are so disgustingly sinful and God still loves us, not uh, because we're great, but because he's great, because he's gracious, because he extends his love even when we trip, 
even when we're stubborn about our tripping and we deny our own tripping, we deny the ways that we fall away from him. He loves us, he pursues us, he calls us back to himself. So if you're tripping and you're a Christian, there's so much grace for you. If you're tripping and you're not a Christian, my, my plea to you this morning would be for you to trust Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. For you to know that there's nothing you can do on your own to be right with God. The only way you have any chance of that is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ that he did live the perfect life you could never live. He did die the death that you deserve on the cross to pay for all your past, present, and future sin so that if you believe in him, you have righteousness, you have his, his perfection given to you so God sees you as perfect, not because of your performance, but because of his perfection, because of his grace in sending Jesus Christ. And so will you trust in Jesus for your salvation. And if you wanna talk about that more, uh, as we bring the prayer team up in just a minute, I would love to chat with you more either there or after service. But if you're here and you're a Christian, we're gonna close out our time of the word with this. Uh, we're gonna do communion together. And um, we'll take the next 30 seconds. And I, I'd love for you to really examine your heart and pray, prayerfully consider places that you are tripping uh, and consider how God has been gracious to you and his love that he's shown to you. Uh, let's confess our sins for the next 30 seconds. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your great grace that you've shown me that as I've tripped and fell time and time again, Lord, you've revealed my sin to me in a way that I could run to you in a way that I could run away from that sin, flee from that sin and run to you instead. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to do that. Help us to be a people of repentance. Help us to be a people of confession. Help us to be a people who don't pretend to have it all together, but who are real with each other, who really share uh, the burdens, really share the, the places we fall, the places we trip up, and who are transformed by that power, that power of your gospel. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. All this in Jesus' name. Go from this place and be a people transformed, not by your perfection, not by your performance, but by Jesus' perfection. I want you to run to Jesus. Lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Go and be a people who look to him. Go and be a people who lay down our tripping, lay down the things that trip us up and run with all endurance to him. We love you. I love you. Thank you for this time. Go and be a people of repentance. Go and have an awesome week of worship. You are sent.